Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 72. Welcome, guys. This is uh, hopefully going to be a short episode just because of our, our uh, recording time. has uh, been delayed a little bit. We were all kind of busy over the weekend. It's been a really busy summer. Kind of looking forward to fall where things will calm down a little bit. Yeah, we've got to get past the uh, all the initial updates and and potential bugs with the next version of iOS. Yeah, I'm not even talking about being busy with iOS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, been busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you got to clear your schedule and deal with uh, transitions, upgrading yeah. to the newest version of Xcode. And... Yeah, right. we got yet another beta today. Yeah, beta 5, probably not the last one. I think there's still a number of Swift uh, proposals that still need to be implemented not not a large number i think we're in single digits now but i'm not sure how many made it into beta 5 oh hmm that is that is curious because usually around this time don't they always submit ios to um, the cell carriers for testing and that's kind of like once they do that they don't give us any more betas i think we have time for at least one more beta yeah we've got another beta or two to go although i'm looking right now and that Swift Evolution, like status thing, shows that there's nine, like yeah, you know, eight accepted and awaiting implementation. So yeah, that sounds about I right. I mean, if they're not implemented in time for Swift three, then that says they'll roll into a, you know, maybe a three one or a three two. So that could always happen. Yeah. Or a three zero one. I don't think they're. Expe- yeah, I don't think they're expecting three one until next spring. Oh, you know what they could do as well, because you had, this is what they did what with Swift 1, right, where they released it for iOS, and then there was a beta purely for Mac OS, and you had to be a Mac developer to get that beta of Swift, I think. Yeah. And then once, it was like 1.1, once that version of OS 10 came out, because it was OS 10 back then. Uh, once that came out, then everybody could use Swift 1.1, I believe. So they could do that. That's a possibility. Yeah, you know, we, we've we been in the position where we've had multiple betas of Xcode and iOS concurrently. So and we can see that again, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I downloaded it onto my phone today, and from what I've seen, it, it's not bad. It's... It's working pretty well. Yeah, they're still making some UI changes, like between beta three and beta four. And you know, there were some some minor changes, but even things like how notification actions are handled changed. Um, and there's a, I think a smaller number of changes in this beta, at least ones that uh, have been identified. But they're still kind of tweaking and moving things around. It does seem like there's a lot, though, just for uh, being at Beta 5, but as yeah. long as they get it right, I guess I'm happy. Still tweaking sounds, and um, looks like there's some settings and maybe control center changes. Part of me wonders with the sounds if they uh, 
had a plan for like, all right, each beta, we're going to do this sound test. And based on, you know, if we get some crazy feedback or people don't care, or people like it, that's how we'll proceed. Because it seems like they've been kind of all over the place. Yeah, maybe it's their version of A-B testing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you guys noticed it, but beta 4 on the 6S, when you locked your screen, it did the little um, force touch feedback buzz, the little uh, haptic mm-hmm. feedback thing. And I, I always was locking my screen as I was putting my phone into my pocket. And then I would think, oh, did I just get another notification? And then pull it back out. They were seriously trolling me quite often. Yeah, I think that may have become a optional setting. I think it's gone now. Is it gone completely? It may be off by default now. It's definitely off by default. Yeah. Maybe they, they made an option of it. Yeah, I can't. Re- I know it changed between beta 3 and beta 4, but I can't remember which way it went. Yeah, I looked for it and couldn't find it, and I was happy about that. It could be under accessibility. That's where the uh, rest of your finger to unlock setting is. So the haptic feedback could be there too, if it's optional. Okay. Hey, I did see another. I did see another rumor. Other, I think it was earlier today that we're going to get some new screen sizes with the the new iPhones. I think they were saying 1080p for the iPhone 7, and then like the five and a half inch. That's I guess that's a 4.7 inch phone, and then the five and a half inch would get like a 2K display or what quad HD or whatever people want to call that. I suspect it'll still be the same aspect ratio, wouldn't it? Just, oh yeah, it uh, seems like they'd be the same size, just resolutions. Yeah, just change the resolution. And there's they kind of both already have like modes that kind of scale things in that way. Like I think it might be like you know you have the three X mode that's does a scale that it renders at and like scales down. It may just be the full three X mode for for a plus and. Uh... I wonder how much of that is. Uh... Is the catalyst for the changes that came in this week for iTunes Connect screenshot management? <laughs> so, uh, before you had to have, in order to manage screenshots, there's, you know, up to five screenshots for five iPhone screen sizes and then two iPad sizes, I believe. And then if you localize, then, you know, that's just a multiplier. So it becomes quite a burden. And now they've, uh, you can, choose to just upload the largest screen size and let the others use those assets. But if you need anything that's, if you have screens that change based on localization or screen size or resolution, you can upload specific screenshots for, for those devices. So I think a lot of people will be happy about that because it makes managing screenshots a lot easier. But if they're planning to add more screen sizes or resolutions, you know, that, I guess six is just too many. Yeah, they did demo this during the What's New in iTunes Connect section, but uh, it seems kind of coincidental that it got announced around the same time these screen size rumors came out. Or Apple sent out an email to everyone about it, I should say. So are they going to resize screens to make it look like the smaller screen if you're viewing from, say, a iPhone SE? Or are you just going to see the like the six plus size? I think they'll use, if all you do is upload the six plus, that's the screenshot that'll be in the preview. Okay. Um, if I, I think that's even true if you're on a 4S today. Yeah. Just think like the Android behavior, kind of how 
their screenshots work on Google Play. You tap on it, and it goes full screen. You browse through them if you look at them. It uses the same source. It may like do some scaling to yeah, it probably scales it on, it on a 4s. It probably you probably scroll or yeah, it gets clicked. Probably does that. Or it gets letterboxed. Well, that's my concern. Is is it going to scale it down and make all the text look ugly on the screen in the screenshot? That's Potentially, yeah. 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 So it might be good to still. You have the option for it, yeah. right? But you can, you still can upload every single screenshot size if you want. Yeah, yeah. fast lane, and you, and you can do yeah. a handful of them. Like, I I think the way the the new media management tool works is you pick, like, there's a spot for each device, and you can pick the device bigger than that to use the assets. Or you can override and, and use the one specific for that one. It's like always like one up. Uh, so it propagates up to the uh, smallest screen size uh, that you have screenshots available that match hmm. the, the device. If that makes sense. And then, you know, with the localization, you know, I don't know how much you guys have done uh, managed screenshots with, for different languages, but we, you know, worked on an app with. That was translated for eight different languages, and it was iPad and iPhone. So that was like half a day just creating and uploading screenshots. And even with something like Fastlane, you still have to spend a decent amount of time prepping the screenshots and languages and and scripting that out. So I think this will be nice. Um, if you're localizing, you probably still want to have the still want to localize your screenshots. That can have a big impact on downloads in other countries. Um, but if you have three different countries that use Spanish, I wonder if you can choose just to default to, to one Spanish version. You have to be careful about that. Different words and the same word in one country can mean something vulgar in another country, even though it's a, just a normal verb. Yeah. Well, I mean, even with, um, even with English, you know, if you've chosen to localize it, I think, like, if you had a, another English-speaking country, I think, as in the past, you were forced to upload screenshots, even if you wanted the same screenshots. I know you had to do the, the what's new and description for every language. I'm not sure about screenshots. Hmm. I think you were right. If you added a new language, you had to. I think that's true, yeah. So even if the language is the same, it's you still have to up, upload separate screenshots or you know same screenshots multiple times. They do have a UI to kind of uh let you say use like I mean like you're saying use all the same screenshots for all the languages too. But yeah, you've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, let's see. So what have you guys been working on lately? Well, me personally at work. I've been struggling with recording analytics and we always seem to save it for the end of a big batch of stories. Then you get this list of 10 or 15 things that they want to capture. Our analytics people, they want to capture. And then you just end up slogging through all the stuff, trying to understand what they're capturing and, not even, you're not even sure if they're understanding what the app is doing and 
it just gets messy. And then, then the other thing is that the, some of the things they want to capture, you know, where, where it would make sense to log these analytics, you just don't have that data. Like maybe you're way down in your code somewhere and this is a, an event where they're purchasing a product or something and the analytics people want to know, well, that was in a list of products and what number was it in the list? And you're like, I don't have that information down here. Do you guys ever run into this kind of problem? Well, it seems like if you knew ahead of time that you needed to, to know what, what number on the list it was, it wouldn't be as hard if you were, as, as it sounds like if you're doing it at the end, I would say. But does does seem like it's problematic to pass all that data around. Yeah, because normally you you want to just give something enough information to get its job done. And then if your analytics all of a sudden require extra information, it's not even pivotal or you know, primary to get that job done, then you're feeling, feeling like you're just butchering your architecture to accomplish these analytics tasks. So in your example, you might have a multi-step workflow and you're trying that, that you've done a good job of uh, segmenting and, and decomposing that work into uh, smaller classes that, that are more single responsibility. But now you've got to manage the state across each of those actions and just for the sake of logging it. So it doesn't really have any direct impact on the user experience. But right now you've got a lot of this stuff might be happening at, at a lower level. You know, something like, like making a purchase, for example, you want to, you know, get the price and, and you're probably not getting that from the UI. You're probably getting that from your model objects or some backend service. So now you've got to manage the, then, you know, pretty much every analytics package out there is implemented as a singleton, which, you know, is, is for good reason, but now you've got all your, classes depending on the singleton so you've got to decide whether or not you want to use that singleton directly or try and wrap it into a property that you can inject uh, with a handle back to the your logger so yeah it uh, can get a little bit messy yeah and I, I even I like to blame the our data people but honestly in my own projects I'm just as guilty where my code is nicely segmented and isolated from different parts. And then I go and I want to say, I need to capture this thing. How am I going to capture that? And oh, now I got to make this weird code change. And even in my own codes, I'm, I'm my own worst enemy there. And I, I like the idea of having a generic wrapper around the analytics library, because I think half the projects I've worked on, we've switched from one package to another because the company goes out of business or they choose to switch to another vendor or they decide to, hey, you know, let's let's log it in multiple places. So you, mm -hmm. you <laughs> aggregate it so you can log it to, let's say, Google Analytics in some proprietary third-party or internal analytics engine. Um, but you don't necessarily want to have the, all your classes depend on, on multiple analytics engines. 
Or for instance, Google just decided, oh, don't use Google Analytics anymore. Now you want to use Firebase. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Google Analytics is kind of annoying too because they they aren't afraid to do breaking changes between uh, and point releases. So I, I, for every time I upgrade Google Analytics, I run into to some issue. Uh, there was one nasty one where they use strings for property names in their builder and um, they changed one of the strings, I think. And the old one caused a crash. If you used the wrong one, it caused a crash, which <laughs> was uh, obnoxious. So, you know, sure, it compiled fine, and you didn't change anything other than update the library. And uh, now, you, now you're crashing because, <laughs> because of a string change. Yeah. A constant string. Right. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll second the having a, a wrapper to deal with that stuff. We do that, and it's come in handy just for... Uh, at least the one scenario I've mentioned and others too. Um, but I don't know. I find that like we log all this analytics in our apps and at the end of the day, there's just so much stuff to wade through that it's like, all right, I want to figure something out someday. Either I didn't have that one specific thing that I wanted or I'm just like, oh, there's so much data. I don't even know like what's important. It seems right. like it can be a bad smell when you're just logging so much stuff like the, the search position that something came in or something like that it's like well is that really the important thing or yeah and i think this is where you got to look at your process and and figure out what metrics do you really want to track i mean screen views or whatever you want to call them you know that gives you that's you know the bare minimum what most people do is just log on view will appear and uh, the name of the screen but um you know depending on your app there might be more important metrics and I don't know about you guys, but the vast majority of the time when we implement analytics for for some business unit, they rarely ever look at the reports. Yeah, I I don't know that I've <laughs> ever seen a whole lot of uh, changes come about in the app I work on due to some kind of analytics. It's all it's all more gut feelings and Yeah. I mean, you you tell yourself, well, now we've got the data so we can decide where we should really be focusing our time. Should we really be enhancing this feature that rarely gets used or, or should we be focusing on the features that, that get the most activity? And now we've got this unbiased data to show us what features are, are the more popular and uh, worth the investment. Yeah. I Of course, you could read it the other way that... Uh, you need to make it better so people use it more. Yeah. <laughs> or it's not discoverable enough for some reason. Or, so it yeah. depends on what kind of story you're trying to, to convince yourself of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for us, analytics have been used mostly to say, at what point can we drop support for the N-1 version of iOS? Yeah, that's not related at all to what, you know, all of these detailed, like, where did this thing come from and what position and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, I find that like, I don't know, 1% of the analytics that we log is, is probably generous for ones that we actually look back at and use in any manner. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of goes against a general principle, but you know, sometimes I think this might be a one acceptable use case for method swizzling. You know, if all you're trying to do is capture uh, the titles of screens every time they're viewed, you know, you could probably do some method swizzling and and not even have to touch all your view controllers. 
Well, if our view controller. That's what a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Google and, and a few others do that. I think Google actually has a a view controller. I think you're. I think it's Google that they want you the subclass in order to get that behavior. <laughs> which you know That's we're funny. probably not going to do that. Um, yeah, I I think in the early days Google might have done that. And a lot of the other packages do that, and it sounds sounds good on paper. Um, I still generally try and avoid method swizzling as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's way too convenient just to grab that singleton instance from within your view controller and, and log it. Right. But, and I've, I've tried to keep that out of the view controller on this round of analytics. But in some, yeah, Firebase has some crazy, crazy, like, uh, Turn on unsafe method swizzling or something like that thing that you have to pass, and otherwise you don't get the the stream level things. But at least they're like, "Hey, we're doing this, just so you know." Yeah. Mm. Uh, see, but then your screens will <laughs> won't necessarily match up between platforms. Your your screen names. If you're trying to say, "Okay, all my Android mm -hmm. users and my iOS users are they're all going to this one screen," well, you have to look at two different places and if you yep. do that swizzling that idea. And we used uh, one analytics pass package that took that idea to a whole another level where they pretty much swizzled everything. Um, <laughs> so like every UI button, every UI view, and then they were able to configure server side um, what actually got logged. Oh. So they basically were capturing all the actions and events on the UI. So theoretically, you didn't have to do any coding in the app. You just... It initialized the library and and it did the rest. But Man, <laughs> that's that took it a little bit too far. On it, Android, I think it created a dynamic proxy for all the UI layer elements, or maybe it was aspect oriented programming. I'm not sure. Maybe one or the other. Mm, that just seems scary. Yeah, it wasn't the most reliable solution, to be honest. Well, and typically yeah. you want to capture other data with the yeah. events. Yeah, like, you know, one thing that we've done and, and probably a lot of e-commerce packages will do is, you know, capture what's being bought, where it's being bought from, how much the purchase was, and what the product ID is. And um, that's more involved than just a, a page view. Right, or then you, a button tap. And then you might also get into, like, audience segmentation, like, you know, one app that we have where we're doing a lot of analytics is we have different uh, types of subscribers. Uh, so we, with every, every time we log it, we log what type of subscriber it is. So it's, it gets segmented mm -hmm. in the analytics and like a free us. and paid subscriber. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've got a, we've got a couple of different kind of paid subscribers, but, but yeah, it's, uh, kind of lets us break down the audience. Yeah, he's... yeah. We do that with single and multiplayer. And we've not really segmented anything. I don't think that I can recall, like, oh, well, what happened at single player versus multiplayer here? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I could definitely see, like, you know, what's the most popular content for free users versus paid users? You know, I could I could see some what-if scenarios for that. Yeah. That's, that's why you put them in there, but... <laughs> but most of the time, you end up going, who's using the application more is, is usually... What you're trying to answer? How big are the segments? All yeah. right. 
I mm. didn't didn't need to log this on every analytics object then. <laughs> yeah. <Whoops. laughs> yeah. And you can also say like who uses it for longer periods of time. Yeah, and I, typically I think you want to take your analytics and and learn from these things. So maybe your free users aren't spending a whole lot of time on the app. So maybe there's something you can do or they're just not finding that subscribe button. Yeah. So, you know, most people's usually take two positions when they start with analytics. One, they try and cast a wide net and log as much as they can possibly log and they'll figure out what to do with the data later because they don't want to run into a situation where they didn't have the data, you know, two years yeah. from now when they're trying to answer some, some question. And the other starting point is, uh, let's, let's just do the bare minimum and log every, every screen view and then go from there. But yeah, usually what you want to do is, is come up with just a handful of metrics that, you know, what, what are the real business processes and metrics around that, that drive your business? So is it number of sales through the apps? Is it number of times people abandon a shopping cart? Um, if you can come up with like five or six of those and, and manage that and keep it to no more than that, you know, I think you end up having data that you can actually do something with without getting overwhelmed with too many metrics. Yeah. In, in my case, I left, I love the, the pathing that analytics can show you with when you have the page views. But in, in the case of the app I work on, yeah, it has a lot of features and probably 95% of the users go into this one feature. They spend about a minute there and then they're done. Yeah. Yeah. So like 98% of the application, <laughs> the time invested in the app is arguably not valuable. Barely used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so it all these analytics. Mean, yeah. If you didn't have those features, it, you know, you, you might not have as many users. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like Microsoft Word, like, you know, 95% of the time you're just using it as a basic word processor, but it has all these other things that it can do. And, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, would it be as popular if it didn't have those other features? Well, that time, that one time that it didn't have it and your competitor had it, then you would lose a customer. Yeah. And, you know, with, you know, let's take a, a, a general retail app, you end up with this kind of keeping up with the Joneses effects, effect of, uh, what are all the other retailers doing? Okay. That's my, that's my minimal viable product. And then you try and find some additional features that on top of that and, and then your competitor catches up and then you've got to innovate somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Not always true. Sometimes, sometimes you can keep, keep it simple. seems like Target redesigns their app every couple of years. They and just went through a redesign and it's yeah. very clean, but it, yeah. it's also kind of sluggish. I, yeah. I have this feeling that they're using React Native. I suspect they're using something cross-platform. I don't know if I could tell if, if an app is React Native or not, but it seems like some of the well, features in the, everyone's using these days. Yeah, seems well, like some of those, um, some of the features in that app, and 
used to be native and now they just go to the browser. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed with some React Native apps is that they don't use a um they don't actually use a native UI view, UI navigation controller. And so what happens is when, kind of defeats the whole purpose of React Native, but <laughs> well, it actually works pretty well when you couple it with uh, a Flux architecture and use Flux for your routing. The the uh, native navigation controller just doesn't work so well that way. So for mm. those that didn't know what Flux is, can you briefly explain <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah, Flux has another acronym, CQRS. It's a like a one-way state state ma management. So you send okay. in action commands to change state, and then a new state gets published, and things can react on that new state. But you only have one way to mutate the state, and everything else can read that immutable state. That, that's kind of the the elevator pitch, I guess. But when you do that, and you use navigation. You use uh, the flux pattern for your navigation too. You can say things like, "I'm going to mutate the state to be on this screen," and then the the views update themselves to then be to actually render that data, that proper data. So, long story short, you end up having to implement your own UI navigation controller or use a third party one, but they never implement the panning gesture, the pan back gesture quite the same way that Apple does. So it's a, it's a dead giveaway when you start to do it and things don't pan or uh, parallax in the right speed or if you let it go at a certain point, it just snaps back or it slowly moves back. And then in the native app, you know that if it, you get to a certain spot and let it go, it'll just finish the navigation back. And uh, most of these ones don't do that. And Target is that, in that same boat. So they're either using React Native and a custom UI navigation controller, or they're using some kind of custom nav controller of their own. But it is slow in the target app. Yeah. It, I don't. It, I don't know if that has would have anything to do with React Native. Cause in theory, it's creating native components. But if they yeah. built their own net version of the navigation controller, I could see that not necessarily being as efficient. So. Assuming you didn't use something like React Native, I know you both work on apps for both Android and iOS. Do you guys make any effort to try and keep analytics using the same terms, keywords, and values on both platforms? Yeah. And yeah, it, we do. It, yep. It's a huge effort all the time. Especially like on a big team where you've got, you know, Three plus people per platform. Yeah, it's not as bad when it's the same person doing that both platforms. <laughs> You'd think, right? No, it hasn't. That that has not been a specific issue that we've had keeping the platform. Okay, I know that's you know a lot of times that's where we you know we don't get detailed requirements. So it's and like you said, Sam, often it's left to that final leg of the of the sprint or release to add analytics. So uh, if you don't have somebody proactively defining, okay, here's what we want to log and how we want to log it, uh, you can definitely have challenges 
doing reports across platforms. Yeah. In the past, we've done it where analytics was just one of those things that we always did as part of the criteria for a story to be done. And uh, kind of gotten out of that practice. I'd like to get back to it. So, because it's just a little sip of pain on each story instead of one big fire hose of pain. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Get back to that. So, you know, kind of going back to your original point of analytics, having an impact to your overall app architecture, you know, this is one of those cross-cutting concerns uh, within an application. It's not, you know, necessarily a, an independent feature, but it gets touched in pretty much every feature you implement. So doing that cleanly can be difficult, especially in iOS where we can't, where we don't really have a first class dependency injection solution. So, you know, how you log and in each feature could vary. Yeah, I've seen people on the, on the Android side use the equivalent of a notification center. And then they have different classes that pump out different events. And it's a interesting way of doing it. I'm not, I'm not quite sold on it, but it does kind of allow you to just pump out some messages and send them off without really caring where they go. So you're not exactly tied directly to a, a um, analytics implementation. I suppose if you use something like the Viper architecture, where you've got a router that controls all your navigation from one screen to the next, as well as you know, maybe handling some, some of the UI events, um, that might let you encapsulate the logging in a single place instead of having it kind of spread throughout the application. As long as you don't need weird data like what's the row that I have to tap on. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't want you wouldn't want your router to really have that much knowledge about the UI. Yeah. And really for me, if you're using Viper with your analytics, you've got now you've got two problems. Because you're using Viper. <laughs> No Viper, huh? <laughs> not a fan. Still yeah. not a fan. Yeah, you know, I've kind of had this theory about app architecture. You know, there's really no perfect or good solution out there that otherwise, you know, we'd all be using it. Um, but my my theory is, you know, you take whatever the starting diagram is, as simple as it looks on paper, assume that represents like maybe 30% of, of the real architecture. So, you know, Viper, which has, you think it only have five, but five different types of objects involved. Um, most diagrams show six or seven, uh, versus like an MVVM or MVC that, that has, you know, three different classes of objects. Um, so if Viper starts with a more complicated architecture, you're probably going to be juggling a lot more uh, different classes uh, within your source code. Uh, so, yeah, if you if you start from a more complicated spot, your architecture is going to just get more complicated from there. 
Yeah. Well, for me, and I guess I will admit to using something like a Viper architecture, but I've done apps where I, I do use an MVVM pattern, but my view model is kind of a facade into a bunch of other things. And that particular app that I did recently that way had like uh, 8,000 lines of code and every, the average file was under a hundred megabytes, under, under a hundred megabytes, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> under a hundred lines <laughs> of code. So that's a lot of files. It, it kind of worked. It was probably less than 8,000, but had several files, you know, several dozen files and they, the average was under a hundred lines of code. And I think the maximum was a view controller that had like 260 or so lines. That's kind of the number that stands out. So for me, MVVM is the starting point, like you said, and then, but it's a nice facade to wrap your view controllers with, yeah. and then you can go on from down there and just keep implementing single responsibility and you know, just other solid principles. Yeah. It, you know, MVVM is definitely one of the more popular architectural patterns on iOS and uh, it's certainly not perfect, but you know, it gives you another place to kind of move that logic out of the view controller into something else. Uh, the, the challenge with MVVM is everybody's got a slightly different implementation, which isn't necessarily wrong. It's just that uh, if you're looking for the the dogmatic way of doing MVVM, it's kind of hard to find. Yeah, it's a guideline. Yeah, much much more than just a here drag a bunch of IP outlets around or yeah, which you know, you know every every design pattern is really, you know, here's, here's the guideline and the general shape of what we're trying to do and, and the motivations, the actual implementation may vary. Yeah. And the biggest issue with MVVM is notifying the people that care or the things that care when your data has changed. And for me, I use RX Swift to do that. Which is kind of a common, common companion to MVVM is some sort of RX base framework right like rx swift or uh, reactive coco yeah we could uh, definitely dive a lot deeper on architecture maybe we say that for a different episode if people are interested um, there's a lot of options out there and and they all have their pros and cons yeah jump in yeah, our that sounds good jump in our slack channel and let us know all right so that's enough talking about analytics for me for one night you guys uh, want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Corder. The podcast is at Shared Inst. And you can reach out to us on Twitter there, or you can get us by email at sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com, or even better, join our Slack, Slack at uh, chat.sharedinstance.com. And let us know what you think or tell us uh, what topics you want us to talk about. See you guys. Later. Later.